around the last few months, you'll know that we've been studying through the book of Isaiah, and over the past month and a half, really, we've been studying just this one section in Isaiah, this passage that's mostly in chapter 53, the final chunk of Isaiah that's called a servant song. There's four servant songs in Isaiah, and this is the last one, and they cause us to focus on this character, the servant, their prophecies about him. And in this last song in particular, it's been a prophecy about the servant's suffering, And as Liam mentioned, we've come to see that this servant is the Lord Jesus, and the suffering is what he would endure in his life and in his death. And this last song in particular has so helpfully helped us see the truths that are present in the statement of the gospel. This passage is something we might really be be quite familiar with summarizing. We can say really quickly, can't we, that Jesus died for sins, but a passage like this is kind of like a diamond, You know how a diamond takes a beam of pure white light and spreads it out into red and orange and yellow and green and purple and violet? It helps us see the colors that were present in that one beam. So Isaiah 53 is taking this statement, Jesus died for sinners, and spread it out in front of us, helped us see in glorious technicolor what the Lord Jesus has done. Even in the five sections that we've looked at, we've seen it's in five verses or five stanzas, each one of those giving us an insight into the cross, an insight into our Lord Jesus. The first section in Isaiah 52, 13 to 15, this, this introduction helped us see that he was the Lord's servant, come to suffer, come to be broken, but in that breaking he would sprinkle many nations. Then we saw in the next section something of his life, how he became a man, grew up before us, but we esteemed him not. We saw that Jesus was ordinary. More than that, we saw that he was rejected. And then in this central piece, the third of five pieces, this middle center pinnacle in verses four to six, we saw the point, the message of this suffering of the servant, that it was for us, that it was for our sins, that Jesus didn't suffer for nothing, but that he was pierced for our iniquities crushed for us. In the next section, in 7 to 10, we saw that he did this willingly. Matt talked us through that a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus didn't go to the cross as a victim, but he went willingly, deliberately. He chose to die, and he really did die, as we read that he was buried, put in a tomb. And I know how powerfully this has affected us as a church, to slow down and see the servant has been a very powerful thing. But in this final section, Isaiah wants to sum it all up, but he wants to do so in a way that's going to safeguard us from misunderstanding the servant. He says we could see the servant, but we could see him wrongly. And he wants to make sure that we don't do that. Have you noticed even through the song that there's been people who've misunderstood the servant? Some people saw him and were appalled. Some people saw him and failed to esteem him. Some people saw him and didn't desire him. Some people thought he was an enemy of God, punished by God. And Isaiah says, no, 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 this is not how I want you to see the servant. As we come to the close, he wants us to see that the injustice of it, the cruelty, the dying, the tragedy of it all will not have the last word. That is not how he wants us to finish seeing the servant as a broken man buried in a tomb. He wants us to see the servant this morning one last time And see him and see in him more. That's why, as Liam said, this verse 10 begins yet. There is a contrast, there's a 
and almost a twist in the tail that he wants us to see something specific as we look at the servant. So let's read together Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. This is God's word to us. How does Isaiah want us to see the servant? How should we see the suffering? First thing he wants us to see, verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will. The suffering of the servant was the Lord's will. If we could get the next slide, that would be really helpful. Everything we've studied in this section, the burial of Jesus, the physical punishment of Jesus, has all been the Lord's will. Everything he endured was the plan of the Father. The suffering servant is not an accident. This is not just some tragedy. We saw that, didn't we, last time, as we realized Jesus willed to go to the cross. But here we realize it wasn't just his choice. Yeah, he chose to have his life poured out, but there was somebody else involved. He wasn't alone. It is not just the son who went to the cross. It is not just the son that chose this suffering. It wasn't just the work of wicked men. No, there is another person involved. The father willed this. This is a consistent testimony of Scripture, even in Acts, as the apostles begin to preach the gospel. They say this, this man, the Lord Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Yeah, it was Jesus' will. Yeah, it was the will of those men to kill Jesus. But there is a supreme agent. There is a chief willer. And it's the Father. He doesn't coerce or negate the plan of the other people, but he plans it. Jesus is not alone. He does not act at random. The Father wills the suffering of the servant. As he suffers, he is in the will of God. And this seems shocking, doesn't it? What we've read, the suffering of the servant, does not look like the will of God. It looks like rejection. It looks like abandonment. It looks like abuse. If you were to look at the Lord Jesus on the cross, outside of the city, on the city rubbish dump, dying between two thieves, you would not look at his broken body and say, this is the will of God. Here is a man at the heart of the will of God. No. You would say he's forsaken. This is a man outside of the will of God. And yet Isaiah says, no, this suffering is the white hot center of the purposes of God for the universe. It was the Lord's will for him to suffer. Suffering is not outside the purposes of God. It's a bit of a side point, but if we were building this morning an understanding of suffering in our world, this was where we should start. The will of the, the, will of the Lord includes suffering. It includes suffering for his servant. And so if you're somebody who's suffering, do not think that necessarily means you're outside of the will of God. 
suffering can be within the will of God. Even for his son, suffering is his will. Jesus on the cross is no rebel. He is no renegade. He is God's servant. Flick back to chapter 52 in that first verse of the song in verse 13. Whose servant is the Lord Jesus? This is God speaking. See my servant. He serves us, but he is not primarily our servant. He's not doing our will. He's the Lord's servant, the Father's servant. Everything we've seen the servant doing has been the purpose of God. He wills this to happen. It was his purpose for his son to suffer. It's a bit of a plot twist, isn't it? As we come to the end of this, this story, this narrative of his suffering, this song, to look back on it all and see the purpose of God. To see that there's a plan in this. Yes, it was the Lord's will, but we should see the purpose as we see the servant. If we click onto the next slide, we'll see the purpose. The servant was not outside of the will of God. There is a plan and a purpose for him as he suffers. And as we study what that purpose is, I think we're going to see that verse 10 is glorious. That it was the Lord's will is no bad thing. This is the best thing. This is stunning news that God willed this. He has a purpose in it for us, in his love, and he has a purpose for his son, even in his son's suffering. So we're going to start to see that as we press on. The first sight we get of the Lord's purpose comes in that first verse, doesn't it? Verse 10, we get this glimpse that there's a purpose. The suffering of the servant was the Lord's will, but it was also not the end. The suffering of the servant was not the end. Verse 10, We've just read in verses 8 and 9 that he was cut off from the land of the living. That means he died. That he was numbered with the transgressors in the grave, dead and buried at the end of verse 9. Yet, verse 10, halfway through, the Lord has made his life an offering for sin. That means he died. Yet, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. This is of a dead man. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered and died, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The Lord's purposes for the servant do not end with his dying. We should see the light as we see the servant. This is not the end. The Lord purposes for the servant to suffer and die, but there is a plan beyond that for him to be raised. This is what we believe, that the Lord Jesus died and was buried and yet is alive. The suffering is not the end of the story, the servant sees the light. He sees life after having been dead. There is prospering. There is a will of God beyond what has happened. And this is incredible, isn't it? As we look at this new life, see what's involved in it. As Jesus is raised to new life, he sees this light of life, verse 10. What does he see? He sees offspring as his days are prolonged. He sees the will of the Lord prosper in his hand. He sees these things and he is satisfied, verse 11. As the resurrected one, he sees the fruit of his labor. He sees that it was not for nothing. He sees his offspring. He sees what he has won. He sees resurrection life. And the will of God that was for him to die, now that same will is prospering in his hand a hand that in the will of God was pierced, now is pulsing and the will of God is prospering in his hand. This is not the end of the story. At the end of verse 9, the story continues. 
even in that preaching of the gospel in Acts, straight away, having said it was God's deliberate plan, the next verse says, but God raised him from the dead. It was the will of God for him to die, but it was the will of God that he would be raised, that he would see the light of life. The servant song is not a song of defeat. This is a song of victory, of triumph. As B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, says, the Lord did not come into the world to be broken by the power of sin and death. But to break it, the Lord rose triumphant from the grave. This is what he came for. Jesus wins. There is a victory. He sees the light of life as one who was slain. And we're going to see that this is his obedience, that he did this as part of God's plan. He was obeying his father's will. He obeyed him to the point of dying. And now the Lord has more for him to do. There is a prospering of the Lord's will that is to come in the hands of the resurrected Lord Jesus. So why was it God's purpose for him to suffer? Why was it God's purpose for him to die? What did it accomplish? The first thing we see is that the suffering of the servant, as we've looked at throughout the song, won our salvation. As we look at the suffering of the servant, we should see the victory of Jesus for us. The suffering of the servant was for our salvation. Jesus didn't suffer for nothing. This was not a pointless dying. Many men die for nothing, but this man died for much. He won our salvation. That's what this song has been centered around, hasn't it? Even in that middle section that Liam read, we saw that we are people who go astray, that we're rebels, we go against God, and so we're deserving of his punishment. But the Lord has set Jesus forth to bear that for us. We are saved, as we've reflected in the song, because he suffered. Right there in that center of the song we read, didn't we? That he was pierced for us. Even in this last, last section, this kind of conclusion, this summary of what we've read, see what the Lord Jesus went through and see what it accomplishes. Look even in verse 10 at what the Lord Jesus endured. This is what he suffered. Crushed. Caused to suffer. If you're used to the old version of the Bible, you remember the expression bruised. Caused to be injured, made sick, wounded. Not just in his body. That phrase there that's translated his life means his very being, his soul, his entity died and suffered. Verse 11, we see that he bore our iniquity, became the carrier of our wrongdoing. Do you see how it's for us? He was poured out to death. That is not just his physical experience, that was the total experience of the Lord Jesus. Every aspect of his being poured out to die. And we've seen that this was for us. It was an offering for our sins. He bore our iniquity. He's made us just through this process. He was numbered amongst us. He bore our sin on the tree. And we've reflected so much as we've gone through, and rightly so, on the love of Jesus. As we see his physical suffering, we should conclude that Jesus loves us. We should see the love he has for us, that he would endure this on our behalf. We should see the love of the Son, and we have. But as we see that God has a purpose in it, we are not just called to see the love of the Son in the cross. We're called to see the love of the Father. Christian, Jesus loves you. That is true. Yes and amen. 
But as we come to take communion, as we look at the suffering of the Lord Jesus, as we see a broken body and poured blood, we should not just see the love of the Lord Jesus. This was purposed by God. It was meant for our salvation by the Father. Christian, as we look at the cross, as you see the suffering of the servant, see the Father's love for us. This is his love. This is the the love of God the Father. This is his purpose. He sent his son to do this. It is not just the love of the son. Yes, the son loves us. Hear me right on that. But the Father loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Perhaps the most famous Bible verse centers not around the love of Jesus, but on the love of the Father in the giving of his son. That there was a servant to suffer was the plan of the Father. The Father's love is there at the cross. As we look at the cross, as we see the servant, see the Father's love for us. is incredibly there in this verse, isn't it? In verse 10, as we see that it was his will to crush him, that it was his plan before the foundation of the earth for Jesus to die for our salvation. But it wasn't just the plan of God. It was the activity of God. Come back with me to verse 10. Read with me that second line. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. It wasn't just the plan of God. It was the activity of God. That's a flashback to a scene in the Old Testament of priests offering sacrifices. And in this scene, who is the priest? It's the Father. The Father is the Old Testament priest who takes up his son and offers him, who sacrifices his son. You might have a flashback to the scene of Abraham and Isaac and this question, who's going to die here? Is a father going to have to offer his son? Abraham doesn't have to go that far, but the father does go that far. He offers his son. He pays the price for our sin through this lamb, the Lord Jesus. He sent him to become one of us. Think about it. Who provides the lamb? Did we find someone from amongst the ranks of men and say, here is a perfect one who can die for us? No. God sent him into the world to be a fit one from amongst us to die. We didn't provide the sacrifice. God provides the sacrifice. What is Jesus' name? He is the lamb of God. He is God's lamb. He sets him forward to be slain. He offers him. In verse 6, as Liam read right at the start, Look back up to verse 6. Who lays the sin? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He puts our sin on his son. He pours out his wrath against our sin on his son. He sees his son put to death. This is amazing. It's a truth recorded in the New Testament too in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him sin. He didn't just make him the chief of sinners. He made him sin itself on the cross. See the Father's love for us in this action. He sent his one and only son. That language from John 3.16 in Greek is monogenesis. Mono, his only begotten. There was one that he had to offer and he offered him to be sin for us. John 4 recalls, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice 
for our sins. Do you see the love of the Father in the cross? That he gave of Jesus. He gave of his son, his one and only mono. This is the love of God made visible. If you want to see what God the Father is like, look no further than the cross. This is his love and his grace made into a person, embodied before us, made tangible. This is his love offered to you. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, this is our God. We can say to you this morning, Jesus loves sinners. God loves sinners enough to send send his son to die for them. This is what's on offer you to, to you this morning. It is the love of the Father in the death of the Son that you might be free from sin and guilt and death and be made one of his children. Become one of these offspring from verse 10. Belonging to Christ, born of him. That through Jesus and what he has done, you can be made righteous. Do you see that in verse 11? By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify, make just, make righteous the many through what Jesus has known of the Father's will, and not just known intellectually, but experienced of the Father's will, you can now become justified. Here is the love of God, and it is on offer for you today to trust in. And it is a person. It is the Lord Jesus. This is the love of the Father made manifest for you to take hold of. Put your trust in Christ today. And if you're a Christian, see again the love of the Father for you. You are not just loved by Christ. You are loved by the entire Godhead. The Trinity loved us before the foundation of the world and planned that the Son would do this for us. My mom pointed out to me the last line of an old hymn which tried to describe the vastness of the love that God has shown for us. Listen to this poetry. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. This is the love of the Father shown for us. This is immense in the suffering of his Son. There is a purpose though beyond us. The end of the gospel is not us. We do not believe that the gospel is all about humans, all about people. It is not about you, ultimately. Even as we think about the vastness of the Father's love for us, the end goal is not us. There is another will, another purpose in this. It was God's will for Jesus to suffer, that he might be raised, that we might be saved. But in all of that, there is an overarching, a single purpose. And Isaiah says, as you see the servant, you must see this. That God's will in the suffering of the servant was that his son might be glorified forever. That his son might be glorified forever. See the servant. See his suffering. See that he has won a reward from the Father. This last verse in verse 12 throws us right back to that first line of the song again. Come back with me to chapter 52, verse 13. As we see the servant, what do we see? See, my servant will act wisely. He's going to act in obedience. He's going to do the perfect will and wisdom of God. That's his activity. And why has God willed for him to do that? Even willed it to be suffering on a cross. 
What was the purpose of that? Verse 13, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. What's going to happen as he suffers? This is what's going to happen. What's going to happen is the Father's love is shown for us. This is what's going to happen. The Son is going to be highly exalted. Come back with me to our section today. Verse 50, chapter 53, verse 12. This is what's going to happen. And the song's got a bit of an enigma in it, doesn't it? We've read that this is the servant. This is his wise activity. And he's going to be exalted. And then for 10 verses, all we've read of is his suffering, of his rejection, of him being despised. So how is this his exaltation? How can you be exalted through suffering, through dying on a cross? Here's how it comes together. Right at the close of the song, Isaiah says, see what the Lord is doing here. Verse 12. Actually, let's go back half a verse. Halfway through verse 11. What's the servant doing? By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12. Therefore, because he bears their iniquities... Because he makes them just, because he suffers, verse 12, therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Look at the next word, because. Why am I going to give him the spoils? Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions, for he bore the sins of many. For it's linked to the reward. See the suffering of the servant. See that he wins his reward. There is an exaltation that comes through the cross. It is linked to the suffering. He's going to be rewarded because of the suffering. He will be exalted as one slain. As one who died, he's going to be glorified. Exalted as one who suffered more than any man. This is amazing, isn't it? What's the reward that he receives? Look with me again at verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. I actually think this is better rendered in a slightly different way. It's fair to the language and it's fair to the the rest of the passage to say this. I will give him as a portion the many. And and he will divide as his spoils the strong. I don't think it's that the Lord Jesus gets a slice of a pie that everybody else gets. No, he is the, the only one who's exalted in this way. And I think this makes sense because the many that are given him as his portion are the many for which he died. The offspring which he sees as he rises is his reward. We, the saved people of God, are his reward. And we are given to him for his honor. He wins that reward. Yes, he wins our salvation, but he wins it as a reward for himself. The Father gives it to him as a reward for all he has done. That language there of of dividing the strong as his spoils, I think that comes Again, from that first section where we saw that kings will shut their mouths because of him. This is what the Lord Jesus is going to get as a reward for having suffered so intensely. He's going to justify many. He will see that fruit of his labor and they will be to his glory. He is rewarded. See that again in verse 11? After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. And how will he feel? And he will be satisfied in what he sees. The servant will rejoice in what he sees. That word after makes it sound like it's just a sequence of events. No, it's a consequence of events. Because he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. This is his reward. 
through suffering so terribly for our sins as an act of obedience to the Father's will, he is exalted uniquely. That's God's chief purpose in this song, the exaltation of his son. This was his plan before the foundation of the world, that through his obedient suffering, Christ may become the display of his grace. I said before that the servant's suffering is the white-hot center of the purposes of God for the cosmos, for the universe. Why did I say that? Here is God's plan before the foundation of the world. God planned in eternity past to give the fullest display of the glory of his grace that his grace may be worshipped. This was his plan. Why did God create the universe? To display his grace that his grace may be exalted. This amazing quality that God has might be lifted up. This was his wisdom. This was his purpose. And he chose to do that in the most incredible way. It might look foolish to us, but this is the wisdom of God. The most incredible way he could display his grace was in the dying, was in the giving of the best being in the whole universe. That the holy lamb of God, the one who is without sin, the eternal son, loved before anything ever happened. How would God display his grace in him? This perfect being, being sacrificed for undeserving sinners. There is no better way to show God's grace. And this is how he has done it. That's what he purposed. That as the son becomes the perfect display of his glory and of his grace, as his son becomes his grace embodied and is exalted because of it, his son gets glory forever. God wanted to put his grace on display in a way which would win glory forever. And he chose to do that by putting his son on display. His grace embodied that forever the Lord Jesus might be the exalted one. He suffered to show cosmic love, to show the the love of God from the cosmos. And as a result, he gets cosmic praise. This is the Father's will. God gave his son for this purpose, that he might be raised and be satisfied looking on an offspring that belongs to him, his portion, the nations gathered around him. This is his reward. And it is because he was obedient. You remember that language from Philippians 2, talking about the humility of Jesus, that he became a man, that he let go of the quality of God and became a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because he did that, therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of the Lord Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father who willed it. This is what we believe. This is the gospel, that the Lord Jesus is going to be lifted up as one who suffered for us. At the start of the song, he said, my servant will be exalted. This is the root. Even in John's gospel, Jesus is lifted up to be exalted, and he is lifted through a cross to become the central piece of the glory of God forever. That's amazing. The one who was despised and rejected is now lifted up and worshipped forever, not in spite of what he suffered, not because people have forgotten that at that one moment he was marred, beyond the likeness of men, but because he was. This is why Jesus is glorified. This is what he was sent for. 
as we see the suffering of the servant, as we see that he wins his rewards, we should see the love of the Father for the Son. The Father loved the Son and gave him to do this, that he might have this glory forever. It is about the Son's glory forever. As we see the suffering of the servant, we see one who is victorious. There is a final seeing of the servant in the Bible. In the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, we get this glimpse of the servant. Maybe you can turn with me there now to Revelation 5. That's on page 1237. We get this amazing glimpse of the servant and the glory he gets for what he's accomplished. In chapter 4, there's been this, this focus on the throne of God, this place where the whole world is being gathered, the central place of his glory, the throne. And then we get to look at the throne and look what's there. Revelation 5, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, a guilt offering, looking as if he had been slain, as one who's been dead. Where is he? Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. What is at the center of the throne of God? Not just the throne room, but the throne itself. What is there? A lamb. And what does he look like? He looks like one who has been slain. In fact, he occupies the center of the throne of God because he was slain. That is where he belongs as a slain lamb who has been raised. Come with me to verse 9. There's this question that's going, who's going to open the scrolls? No one is worthy. No one is worthy. And then they say this of the lamb. Chapter 5, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Why is the Lord Jesus worthy? Because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased from God persons from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. I will give him as his portion this many. He will divide as his plunder this great. Why? Because he was slain. Because he was slain, he is rewarded, made the obsession of eternity. We will never talk about Brexit in eternity. You will not hear the words Trump or Clinton in eternity. It has one obsession, and it is a slain obsession. It is a slain lamb that occupies the minds and hearts and tongues and praises of every person Jesus died for that are gathered to him for him. That is what this song is about. He will be exalted. This song that's been taken up in Revelation 5 now starts to resound and resound and resound through all creation. As we see the servant, the lamb that was slain, we see that Isaiah is a song of victory. A song of the love of God for his people. And a song of the reward, the exaltation of his servant that he gives him forever. Let's pray.